When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Attention all personnel, please clear the launching area. Fire, fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. As the Guess What's in the Jingle Saga drags on, welcome to November's Space Boffins podcast with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists and this time we'll be discussing the challenge of moving to Mars, celebrating the obscure switch that saved Apollo 12 and hearing about a mission to a comet that's not been discovered yet. We're recording at the Royal Astronomical Society in London's glamorous Mayfair, where our <laughs> guest is. No, so, we're not yeah. glamorous. It's the Mayfair that's glamorous. <laughs> I maybe should put a comma in that. <laughs> where our guest has been attending a scientific meeting. He's Chris Lee, head of science at the UK Space Agency. Now, Chris, you oversee the UK's contribution to science missions. Which is your favourite? What's your favourite science mission? The science mission at the moment? Oh, it has to be Solar Orbiter. So tell us about Solar Orbiter, because this is launching in February, isn't it's it? It's launching in February. I saw it the other day, actually. Oh, fantastic. In Germany, yeah. Oh. Still there, still, still looks fine. <laughs> Jolly good. It's, it's travelling over there now, isn't it? It is, it's on its way, yeah. Yep. I, I guess the reason I'm so excited by that one is it's, uh, I think it's a generational instrument mission for the UK. Not only is the UK industry building it, which is you know, good news for industry, but we've actually got four key science instruments on board and they're all going to play a pretty important role in something that I've always enjoyed, which is solar observation. You know, As a part-time role, I, I like to sketch uh, astronomical objects and I sketch the sun. And so Solar Orbiter, to me, is a, is a mission that brings together UK science, UK industry, and something I genuinely think the public understand you know you you point out to them that you are living next to a star yeah well but the sun is a star yeah it is a star and we are learning so much about it so yeah solar orbiter is my favorite mission at the moment oh when you say you sketch the sun presumably not you don't know, go sort of child as i would do <laughs> child sketch get a yellow crayon no, and go no, through this, this no. blob so these are sort of close-up images these are telescope they? images mm. put a solar filter on it uh, i'm part of an astro sock local astro sock so i put a, a filter on it and yeah then i'll look at the sun sadly at the moment the sun's rather boring and there's no sunspots it's uh, one of these uh, cycles where there's a, a sunspot cycle where it becomes quite prominent lots of sunspots but at the moment it's a very quiet period for the sun that's one of the the things that the Solar Orbiter is going to investigate, isn't it? This this eleven year solar cycle, and yep. why it's eleven years? Well, no one really knows. Uh, uh, obviously, the sun itself is just a great big plasma ball. Uh, it's moving. Uh, it's a huge plasma ball. It's moving through magnetic field uh, uh, manipulations inside the sun. We hope we can detect what's happening by looking at the pole of the sun. You might remember, if you're a child, you might remember iron filings and using iron filings to throw them on a magnet, and you'd get to see the uh, the, the magnetic field. Oh, that beautiful sort of pattern. You get yeah, on that's the iron right. Filings, yeah. yeah. And, and the one thing we've never really been able to do with the sun and observing the sun is to see the pole of the sun. It's quite difficult to get above the sun. You can generally see the, the equator of the sun, but not the poles. So this mission is going to spend some time looking at the pole, and, and hopefully that will give us some insights into the way the whole dynamo process of the solar cycle is, is working, and hopefully that will give us the 11-year cycle information. Well, one of the reasons that you're on the podcast, not just because, obviously, we're delighted to see you and have you on, is that this month the uh, European Space Agency, ESA, has its big funding meeting, Space 19+, Plus, which I think sounds a little bit like a Club 18 to 30 holiday or something. Uh, this it's is going to be exactly the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> and this is where decisions are being made over, over which future missions to support. And five years ago, Rosetta's Philae, 
a lot of UK involvement in that one. It made history when it descended to the surface of the comet. And while the ESA mission was a tremendous success, and it's officially ended now, the science, amazingly, is is still ongoing. And now hot on the heels of this mission, we've got another mission to a comet um, to look forward to at the end of the decade. Comet Interceptor. Yeah, you're nodding there. You're happy about that one. Yeah, Comet Interceptor is is quite a novel approach. Um, you're, you're quite right. Uh, we have the Council of Ministers meeting coming up. ESA wants to get endorsement for their next five years, three to five years uh, programmatics. Space science is one of those. Things that we're very familiar with in ESA are the very large Nobel Prize winning type missions, the so-called L-class missions that are worth about a billion, uh, a billion euros, a billion dollars or a billion pounds. It's all about the same now. Uh, these programs are there to challenge science in, in, in its extreme. But ESA, for the first time, uh, has introduced a new class of mission called an F-class mission, a fast. Which isn't what we think. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully... The it's fast. We should fast. say it's fast. Yeah. An F-class mission meaning fast or flexible, depending on your, uh, your take. Uh, the first one has been approved, and that is Comet Intercept. And the reason it's quite interesting from my perspective is it's giving younger scientists an opportunity to imagine how to develop a program and see it deliver data in a sensible period of years. I mean, as you might re- recall, many ESA missions, they can take 20 years between initial design to the first data set coming back, which is difficult for a career scientist. So the F mission was specifically asked by ESA to be novel and innovative and a UK team won it brilliant and it's only taken uh, eight years in fact to uh, put together and the spacecraft will be hitching a ride into space alongside the um, ariel space telescope mission in 2028 ariel's investigating exoplanets and it will also look out for comet interceptors chosen target which as we're about to hear from its two uk principal investigators won't be decided until the very last minute. Now, the first PI that we'll hear from is Colin Snodgrass from the University of Edinburgh. It's primarily a European Space Agency mission, so the European Space Agency will take care of building the main spacecraft. But one of the fun features of the Comet Interceptor is it's actually three spacecraft in one mission. We have the main spacecraft that will fly by the comet at a reasonably safe distance, and we'll return some data, and, but it also acts as a data relay for a couple of smaller probes. So we send these, these small probes really close to the comet, into this dangerous environment of dust and gas coming off of the, the comet, and they relay data back from this kind of high-risk environment to Earth. And so there are two small probes one of which is also built by European Space Agency, but the other is built by the Japanese Space Agency, JAXA, and so it uses a lot of the technology from their current mission, Hayabusa 2, which is exploring an asteroid at the moment. And so they've got a lot of uh, experience of now producing really nice miniaturized instruments for this probe. So it's a nice collaboration between Europe and Japan. Can I have your name and how you'd like to be described? (laughs) <laughs> I'm uh, Professor Garant Jones. Um, I, I don't know, uh, Balding. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm head of planetary science group at UCL's Mullard Space Science Laboratory. So, just give me the pitch for this mission because it does seem extraordinary. Because you're, you're going to an object that you don't even know is there. Yes. Well, somewhere out beyond the orbit of Pluto, our target is hopefully nearing the Sun right now. But we don't know where it is, which direction it's going in and even where it came from. Yeah, so it's a new type of mission. So obviously all previous missions to comets had to know where their target was going to be in the future. So as a result of that, they could only go to comets with well-established orbits. So there was one the year before, Comet Halley in 1985. That was the first flyby. That was a comet called Jacobini Zinner that NASA sent a spacecraft to. It was the same with Halley and 67P where Rosetta visited. Um, All these comets are on known orbits. Their paths are very well known precisely many years in advance. So if we're going to a comet where we don't know which direction we're flying past it, at what speed, we can't afford to do that. So we have to design a mission where we basically store the data as we're going past and we send it back afterwards. So you launch into space, you sit at one of these Lagrange points mm-hmm. out in space where you can just sit perfectly balanced gravitationally, so it's not really going anywhere, yep. and you look for a target and then 
you head for it. Is that the plan? That's it, yes. So the F-Class mission, when it was announced by ESA in 2019, they said it will be launching with Ariel, which is going to Lagrange Point L2, which is beyond the Earth. So if you think of the Sun and the Earth making a line, uh, L2 is about a million and a half kilometres further away from the Sun than the Earth is. So yeah, it'll, it'll arrive there with Ariel, and then we'll sit there for up to, we're thinking about three years, so it won't be looking for the targets itself. We're relying on observatories here on Earth to find uh, a target for us, either coming in from what's known as the Oort cloud, this very distant cloud of um, comets that were thrown out far from the sun when the solar system was formed, or even, if we're really lucky, an interstellar object, so possibly a comet as well. So an interstellar object is something from not from our solar system, coming through our solar system, passing passing on, on the way through and then heading out again. Exactly, yeah. So or being be, captured by the sun and staying in the solar system. Yeah, so, so this would be an object that's been thrown out of its own star system, just like some of our comets were thrown out of our solar system billions of years ago when the planets were being formed, and it still happens at a very, very low rate now. So, yeah, a target like that would be really exciting. We could compare what a comet like that is like from another star system with the comets we've seen near the Sun. But the chances of getting a a target like that are are slim. It's much more likely that we'd be getting a a target that's coming from our solar system's Oort cloud way beyond the orbit of, of Pluto. The big problem with these objects coming from the Oort cloud is that the cloud is spherical. They can come in from any direction. So the Earth and the other planets all orbit pretty much in the same plane, what's known as the ecliptic plane. Um, And most short-period comets, like 67P, where Rosetta went to, they're they're pretty close to this plane. But, yeah, this target would be coming from anywhere in the sky. (laughs) Yeah, so there are lots of constraints. (laughs) What, you know, you've got to have... We can talk about what you're going to do when you get to it, but... Why? What is the attraction of, of these objects in the Oort cloud or interstellar comets. What's so special about them that's worth putting in this effort? Many of your listeners will be aware that the Rosetta mission, for example, made a big point of going to a very primitive object. So it's one of the leftovers from when the planets were formed. And there was a wealth of information that came out of that and the, the other comet missions as well. So they've, But they've all been to comets that have been past the sun many times. Every time they get heated by the sun, the ices on the surface melt and change. They may lose some of the more volatile or easily boiled off material, so that might change what the ices are like on the surface. And also, every time they go past the sun, they kick off dust, which is mixed in with the ice, and a lot of that dust falls back down onto the surface. So at 67p, uh, where Rosetta visited, they found that it was covered in a very thick layer of dust, which was hiding what the ices under the surface were made of. So if we're able to visit an object from the Oort cloud, the expectation is, but we don't know for certain, is that we'd see the pristine ices. There'd be dust still mixed in with the ices, but it wouldn't be coated in this layer of of, uh, dust, this mantle of dust. So with the highest resolution camera on, uh, on the mission, we'd be able to map the surface, see what the ices are made of, see what the shape of the surface is like so it's morphology so it probably hasn't been sculpted the same way that other comets have been that have been past the sun many times so we might see something that's maybe something similar to 2014 MU69 which is the object that New Horizons went to right at the beginning of this year after passing uh, Pluto a few years ago. We don't know exactly what to expect, but we do know that it will be a different class of object to the ones we've seen previously. And then if it's an interstellar object, who knows? It might have been a comet that's been around a star many times, so it might have been processed at that star before being ejected, or it might be something that's thrown out from another star system when its planets were being formed in the same way that the the comets in our Earth cloud are... Um, lingering at great distances from the sun right now. The comets coming in from the Oort cloud at the point that they're coming close to the sun and close to the Earth, they're going really fast, so tens of kilometers a second. And we simply can't match that speed. We can't take a big enough rocket to make the spacecraft go fast enough to match speeds to get into orbit around it. So we have to just fly past the comet as it comes 
through the inner solar system. I mean, really, we put... That still the, sounds quite tricky. It is quite tricky. I mean, re- what we have to do is we... Essentially, we have to put the spacecraft in the right place and the comet will fly past it. So it's a matter of predicting where the comet's going and being in the right place at the right time to, to see a comet go past. But then most of the, the data we will collect will be over only a, a very short period, a few hours, as, as it goes shooting past us. Colin Snodgrass and Geraint Jones. I said Geraint because I love the, the way balding, it says Urt. The, 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 the balding. Ball. <laughs> you got an insight there into the radio broadcasting process. Um, beautiful accents, actually, there. Both love the way it says Urt. Yeah. It's lovely. And they're principal investigators for ESA's forthcoming Comet Interceptor mission. It's pretty audacious, isn't it, Chris? Yeah. One of my first missions I ever worked on was, uh, was Giotto. Um, going to Halley's Comet. So I'm delighted that actually all this time later, towards the end of my career, I'm seeing a mission that's been pulled together by young scientists in a very attractive, low-cost route. Uh, I'm not sure ETA were expecting UK to, to be the winner of this particular competition. I think they were hoping there were other member states that might be stepping up to this one. But it's just a fantastic mission. Why did you think they, you know, the UK was sort of uh, not necessarily the favourites? Well, I think the F-class mission was being set up by ESA in some senses to help those member states who were under-returned uh, at, at ESA. They haven't had as much money back as the money they put in. And smaller missions tend to play to some of those nations, Scandinavian countries in particular. Uh, UK is considered to be one of the established nations, so, you know, France, Germany, UK and Italy. So I think ESA's general view is, well, you know, you're involved in the major programs and so you'll probably concentrate on those missions and yet along came something completely inventive and uh, just won the day. A mission they couldn't refuse effectively. Absolutely right and interesting the second mission that was used as a backup is also from the UK so it's great. Fabulous. Uh, can I just talk about the water because when we had the Rosetta it was all about and the, the build-up there was that film i'm not going to use the, the word i would describe that film there was that film and it was all going to be about the water and rosetta was going to discover the the water uh, is it still a big deal as, as comets as a water delivery system if you like a water delivery system for for life or for the earth I think from what I've seen on the research is that the court is, is still out on whether comets were responsible for the delivery of water to Earth. I think you're right. There was this assumption that comets were the obvious delivery mechanism. But the information coming back um, now puts that under, under a question. Uh, and so we, we need to have more information from more missions. If there's a you know, plan B for that water, I don't know what it is yet. Um, we'll see. But we don't know, do we? Because, like you say, we need more information because the water on Rosetta, uh, on Comet 67P, it was determined by the Rosina instrument that it wasn't the same type of water that was on Earth. But that's just from one comet. That's right. I mean, clearly, if we'd seen water of the Earth's type, I'm sure we'd have all turned around and said the theory is now right. It's been proven. But yes, you're right. I mean, the Oort cloud is very, very large. There's probably different types of uh, water systems out there. So, yeah, we need more information. Now, you've got the ministerial meeting coming up this uh, meeting, uh, end of November, talking about future missions. Mm. We've just been talking about this F-class mission, so designed Mm. to launch in, I think, 2028. But you're looking ahead now. You've got this program, Voyage 2050. So you're now looking that far far ahead, 2050. Yes, ESA has to prepare. Um, These missions, as I said, can take 20, 25 years from, from cradle to grave. Uh, so we at the moment are in the tail end of what was called Cosmic Vision, which was essentially 2015 to 2025. So uh, European scientists need to know what will follow the, the next big missions in particular. We have two very large missions coming up, so-called L-class missions. Uh, we have Athena and Lisa, which will come together around 2030, 2035. Uh, and so ESA needs to start to prepare, well, what will the world of science look, space science look around 2035 and start the groundwork now the challenge i think for isa is that the world of technology is moving so well that's what i was going to say actually do you even know you can come up with a mission you don't know what the technology is going to be to do that you know 20 years ago i think we could predict the sorts of missions that were going to come up in cosmic vision 
I think we've just been to the COS, uh, the Voyager of the Voyage 2050 uh, activity, and there were definitely two classes of payloads coming forward. They're the ones, if you like, were the more classical, large institutional telescope project, the big observatories. So, like Hubble or James Webb, and indeed from the US, we're seeing uh, Louvre and the like on the ultraviolet. But we were also seeing some innovation coming from organisations wanting to see, you know, perhaps over a hundred or a thousand smaller satellites out there sampling the interstellar medium so uh, you were seeing those communities coming along saying look technology is picking up at a pace as a consequence of that we can't predict quite so accurately what science will need in in 30 years time now i'm sorry to keep mentioning the new space boffins jingle um, but we'd still like to hear from you if you can tell us where all the clips come from in the jingle Uh, so here it is again Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That was really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. No prizes, but you will get a mention on the podcast. And who wouldn't want a mention on the (laughs) Space Boffins podcast? Do you want a mention on the Space Boffins podcast? Yes, I hear that. This is Sue Nelson. I hear that jingle every month and I still don't know all the, the component parts a, of it. There's some clever stuff going on in it. Well, still to come, moving to Mars and the drama of Apollo 12. This is Space Boffins and we're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. You can reach us all on social media and also by email, info at boffinmedia.co.uk. Do get in touch, only nice emails though, please. And please rate us on your podcast platform. Do you know what that even means? I have no idea, but nine and three quarters, I'm assuming. Okay. Now, our guest is Chris Lee from the UK Space Agency, and uh, we're going to head to Mars now. Now, you probably associate the Design Museum in London with something like a Le Corbusier chair or a Philip Stark lemon. Lemon squeezer. In fact, I actually have a Philip Stark lemon squeezer and it's beautiful to look at and totally useless. But the remit of the Design Museum is far wider than that. And hot on the heels of its acclaimed Stanley Kubrick exhibition, there's a new exhibition that also enters the world of space. It's called Moving to Mars and it explores how sending humans to the red planet is not just science and engineering, but also a new frontier for design. There are over 200 exhibits, including objects and material from ESA, NASA and SpaceX. And I was there for the opening. Mark McCorcoran, Senior Advisor for Science and Exploration at the European Space Agency. So what's ESA's involvement with this exhibition? The European Space Agency has been involved from the beginning in this show. We, I actually think, first met some of the people more than a year ago and actually had a meeting with them when they had the Kubrick exhibition here, which is fascinating in the same space. So to see it now full of all the real space stuff is very interesting. We had some conversations with them about what sorts of things should feature in the show. It's not a traditional science museum type show. It's more the issue about design, although there's lots of real hardware here and we have some of our ExoMars rover prototypes here as well as a full-scale model of the actual Rosalind Franklin rover that will be going hopefully getting launched next summer and then arriving in early 2021. Obviously there's always design involved in science and engineering but it's usually more functional shall yeah. we say than worthy of uh, of being celebrated <laughs> for its design. Yeah I think obviously from our perspective let's get the technology right first and a lot of people look at the International Space Station as an example of sort of bad design. Well, it's highly functional design. It works. It's very claustrophobic on the space station uh, in certain parts. There's places where there's bags of water and cables draped through. And so it's not something if you started from scratch, you would design it like that. But that's how space is. You make it functional. Um, you fit things into spaces in a way that still allow humans to function, but you cram as much in as you can because mass is money, volume is money, air is money. So here I think we're probably on the other side a little bit. We're seeing some elements which are highly functional and look designerish, nevertheless. And then there are some aspects here which of course are sort of science fictional in, in their design not only because they might not be practical in the environment ultimately but also we're talking hundreds of years in the future uh, with potential long-term habitats on Mars we don't know what technology really will look like then so we're speculation not for us on the way to Mars today but maybe in the future 
What I want you to do, your challenge today, is to actually design the rover that will actually pick up the samples this rover has collected and take them to an ascent vehicle. My name's Sanjeev Gupta and I'm a professor of Earth Sciences at Imperial College London. What's been your involvement with this exhibition? Oh, well, several things, but mostly it's been the huge panoramic display that shows us what it's like on Mars today. And so what we've used here are images taken by the Curiosity rover, which I work on. It's just been amazing to have these at a huge scale uh, so that you feel immersed in the Martian landscape. And then we've written a story, basically a narrative, about the science that the Curiosity rover has discovered. And, you know, some facts, fun facts, if you like, about what it's like on Mars, the environment, the temperature, the radiation, all of these things. It's all about setting things up for the rest of the exhibition, basically. Partly, firstly, to basically give people a sense of what it's actually like on Mars. I mean, most people don't know what it's like on Mars. And when you have this immersive environment with these beautiful landscapes, you get a sense of why people might go to Mars. And then ultimately, you know, what I wanted to do with the team here was to, you know, set up the motivation why go to Mars? Well, we go to Mars to do science and we want to reconstruct Mars's history. That's what I do as a geologist. Obviously, the design element is important because as we think about humans going to Mars, there's going to be a lot of design elements. And there's already design elements. Obviously, people have to design rovers. They look a bit clunky, etc., but they're designed for that particular environment. But for humans to go to Mars, there's going to be a complete new set of design questions and design strategies. I'm Xavier de Kessler. I'm an architect at Hassel Studio. And what have you designed for this museum? Obviously, as an architect, you're looking into habitat. Yes, exactly. So for the first time, what we've done, we actually took our competition entry for the NASA 3D printing challenge for Mars Habitat, and we took that and we actually did a full one-to-one mock-up bit of an analogue here in the Design Museum. First time we've done that. It's quite cool, actually, because it looks like a sort of living room of the future, which is <laughs> what you want, really, for being on Mars, but with a, with a view overlooking Martian red soil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we also want to look at futuristic, but also kind of really homey. I think that's really important. That it doesn't look like a, a science fiction movie. It doesn't need to be. You know, who wants to live in a science fiction movie, right? Which is why you've got bamboo plants. From exactly. So we're thinking... You might grow bamboo on Mars. Can you grow bamboo on Mars? <laughs> well, I'm actually working with some scientists now, and we're looking at it, and it's probably, yeah, it is quite possible. Oh, okay. Not that easy, but it is possible. Mm-hmm. Because we thought when you grow bamboo, then we can maybe use that for floor covering. If you see, we have a floor covering made out of bamboo. And even if we go inside, you see some of the, the cupboards and all that have a thin veneer bamboo, probably on a carbon fiber backing to make it super light. But yeah, it's much more tactile. So why not have that in a Mars habitat? Why not have a home as nice on Mars as you would have it on Earth? Actually, I can see the um, the appeal of bamboo underfoot because in terms of travelling and taking mm-hmm. it with you, it's incredibly light. Mm-hmm. And then also, as you say, there's a sort of homely feel yeah. about it so that it's not all stainless steel, effectively. Exactly, yeah. or plastic. So, And we came up with that idea because we were talking a lot to the people from Halley 6, the British Antarctic Survey. They're out there in the Antarctic, living in, 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 in their uh, habitat, and they said, yeah, you know what we miss? We miss stuff that is tactile. And they told me this story that they even took some crates, some plywood crates they had, packaging them, and they put it in the wall to have a much more nicer kind of wooden backing. And we thought, oh, that's interesting. So we got inspired by that and did that here on our habitat as well. So this is a psychological aspect. I also noticed that in the um, storage areas, you've Mm. got a Singer sewing machine because you've got your Martian clothes. And that, I assume, is because, again, if something needs repairing, you can't throw it out and get a new one. Exactly. We've been working with uh, Rayburn, a fashion design house, who have their latest collection inspired by our design and what they're famous for is actually reusing and recycling material they even make jackets out of parachutes and once we saw that we were like oh that's it of course landing parachutes once you've landed what are you going to do with it well maybe the astros might make clothes with it sort of what people did in the second world war with the silk parachutes exactly so there you go yeah yeah yeah. so uh, we need to start thinking about that more over and over again 
we took that even much further in our design. If you see, we have a, a swarm robotic system that 3D prints a shell structure, which is kind of a, a, a cave that would protect us from solar and uh, cosmic gamma radiation. And that is done by a robotic system. And these robots are autonomous, but also modular, which means they can be combined in different functions after they've done the printing. So they become maybe the house robot or something else so they completely have different functions afterwards so again reusing whatever you have over and over again in something else you see the furniture that's 3d printed it's 3d printed out of recycled plastics where it come from or maybe the packaging material that the astronauts have reuse that into furniture anna talvi microgravity wear designer now that is quite a title how did you get in to designing spacesuits for Mars for this exhibition? I actually come from a background of studying mathematics and physics. And then I switched to design. This is an optimal set of garments for a prolonged stay in microgravity. So it addresses the many physiological issues we get when we are in weightlessness. For example, very substantial bone and muscle mass So the core research that I'm doing is about developing antagonist exomuscle bodysuit, which is, which is essentially like a workout membrane around your body to keep your postural muscles active throughout the day. So they would load your weight-bearing bones. So that would help to minimize the bone loss as, as much as we can. But then it also includes everything that goes underneath the suit to keep the suit clean. So very fine base membranes and underwear. We've got four mannequins yes. hanging from the ceiling, all exactly. in black. And so, so are these the base layers? It comes logically. The first one are the base membranes, the underwear that goes underneath the suit. The second one is the suit that goes on top. And on top of the suit, you choose. You either have a long set, let's say when you want to dine or when on like leisure, and then kind of a workout shorts and t-shirts. And uh, most of the materials are especially developed for space. And, and for example, the last one for the, for the workout outfit, it's a very powerful textile that helps to draw sweat away from your skin. Because when you sweat in space, because it's microgravity, so the sweat doesn't actually evaporate. So it creates aura around your body. So you need something very, very powerful and smart to get it away from you because you don't want all sorts of bacteria and fungus growing on your skin. One thing on a, on a very sort of trivial level, but I'm delighted to see in a gift shop, there's NASA and ESA. <laughs> you've got Products, there, you've, yeah. yeah, you've got there before me. I, I did see across the room the meatball, the NASA logo, so I'm very happy to see that we have products there as well. Yeah. I'm not sure if that is actually, sorry, uh, pun by design, whether, whether we actually put them in there or whether the museum has done that. But we know very well, of course, that particularly here in the UK, there's a bit of an addiction to, to NASA, which I always find strange. You know, the British pay for and are involved in the European Space Agency. There's the whole Brexit business. Is this to do with the attitudes towards Europe? I think it goes much deeper than that. It goes back to Apollo. It goes back to... It also goes back to design. It's a, it's a fabulous, recognisable logo. It is. I mean, the NASA meatball is, is certainly uh, a cool one. But, of course, then you see this ambiguity that people are using the worm as well from the 1970s. But it, it has a long-term associations as well for people. And I, I don't mean anything bad about that. Let's ask the positive question. How do we make people here understand that what we're doing with the European Space Agency is cool stuff? Uh, we're doing some amazing missions beyond Mars. We've, of course, we've got lots of missions coming up soon. We've got KOPS launching by the end of this year to look for exoplanets going around nearby stars. Solar Orbiter heading off. That should be shipping to uh, Cape Kennedy soon for being launched in early next year. And lots of things coming up. We've got astronauts of course across many of our countries there's lots of interesting stuff going on with them but so maybe just a redesign of the ESA logo well so you know it has, she says huskily yeah. 
I, I don't think it actually ever has been redesigned. So, you know, the, the, you, don't, you don't go into rebranding lightly. And indeed, going back to the NASA logo, the meatball was there, the snake came in. I actually kind of thought the snake was cool. And then people got rid of the, the worm, the snake, and wanted to go back to the meatball. So rebranding isn't always trivial. Ours is of its time, and I think you could change something. But I'm, I'm more interested in the bigger picture thing about how to get people engaged also in this idea that 22 countries working together is a different mindset and a different philosophy Mm -hmm. than one country saying this is a national program with flags attached to it. I was going to suggest some sort of logo then with lots of stars representing all the member states. Yeah, or maybe with a blue background perhaps. But uh, funnily enough, a few years ago I did, I I think it was one of the UK space conferences. It was around the time of Rosetta. I think it was probably before we'd actually arrived and I was setting out the scene for how we wanted to promote it. And I said, look, I don't, I'm not interested in, in people as such identifying with the flags and with it being European. I'm interested in being excited by what we were doing and then secondarily saying, oh, who did it? Oh, those guys. Mm. And then Peter DeSelding, space journalist, sort of said, well, that's all by necessity because you don't have a flag, right? You have 22. How do you use it? And I said, I don't see that as a disadvantage. Now, let's not make this about flags. Yes, the member states put the money in. The member states need, need recognition. But... It's a bigger thing than that, what we do in the European Space Agency. It sort of brings the importance, though, doesn't it, of sort of back to design, effectively. People need to know what you do and then yep. be interested in what you do. Do you see this exhibition as a way in which people will come here who are perhaps first and foremost interested in design and then, as a result of the exhibition, come away with a little bit more knowledge in terms of what goes into a mission to Mars and the design that goes into every aspect, whether it's habitat, what you wear, how you live, how you get there. As you know, I'm very open to any way of opening up new avenues into into different communities, different groups of people who have different interests. And that's not because I actually even want to get them to the point where they say space is cool, space is important, space is great. In some ways, you know, space is an invisible force in many people's life. They look at their mobile phones, they know where they're going to the shops, and they don't realise that that's all coming down through uh, navigation satellites. So I don't mean to put us out in front, but what is important about space is that it demonstrates the power of long-term collaboration, of, of equations working, that numbers and physics mean something, and that by picking a challenge, which is very difficult, you can get to the point where you can solve it if you decide not just to sort of say, right, had enough of that, don't like that, run away from it. But this is also an exhibition that celebrates the inspiration, the art it, as well. No, it does, and I, and I think that, again, one has to... You know, use those things which are attractive. There's a, you know, some beautiful pictures here in the room where we're standing now, which I've not seen before. And I want to, you know, I'm even as a space person, I want to go and find out who made that, what was the motivation for that. But I, I am very taken with the design aspect. So I think design is important in our lives, how we function as humans. And if we go to a place which is inhuman, how can design help us actually retain some of that humanity? Mark McCochran. The Moving to Mars mission is at London's Design Museum and it's running until February the 23rd, 2020. What did you think then? You went along, I couldn't go. Because I was actually looking at Solar Orbiter. (laughs) happened, I was in Germany with Solar Orbiter. Well, it's quite difficult. When you go somewhere for work, you're not paying as much attention in detail. And you've not paid either. And I've not paid to the exhibit. So consequently, I was more concerned with getting all those fabulous interviewees uh, than actually having a close-up look. I did like, funnily enough, I did like the sort of Mars Hab, the the module, just because it was fun. But what I realised I missed afterwards from reading... Uh, other people uh, in terms of their descriptions and what they thought were the more historical aspects. There were quite, apparently there's like a Schiaparelli original drawing there. And I thought, oh, I would have loved to have seen that. So I think actually, for me, the jury is still out because I realise I need to go again and see it properly as a punter. And I think I'm going to love it. So the reviews are, <laughs> the reviews are all pretty much four, four and five star mm. in all the, the papers. It was quite heavily reviewed. But it is quite expensive. Oh, is it? I, you see, I'm not quite sure what the cost is because I didn't... Obviously, I, I went there for work and didn't pay. But I always get a bit sniffy at the cost of exhibitions. I think because, you know, maybe it's the whole being British thing where most of our museums are free anyway. I know that in order to make their money, they have to charge for exhibitions. But at the same time, I just think, 
how dare you? How dare you charge that much? Um, so yeah, so I'm yeah, I there you go. But uh, yeah, I, it's 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 a mix of art, fashion, architecture, models history so it covers quite a lot and at first glance you just think I thought anyway well is this it and that's why I feel as though I need to reserve my judgment because the beauty of that exhibition is in the detail and I did not have a chance to look at it so we need a space boffins outing yes to to the exhibition okay we'll try to get him free yeah obviously (laughs) Um, I mean Chris do we actually you know this is all about you know having ultimately moving to Mars or habitations on Mars do we actually need to go to Mars as these rovers get more and more sophisticated are you an advocate for humans going or are you happy or are are you happy with you know i mean the the, the images we're getting back now and these stereoscopic images as well where we're getting this i mean okay it's not in real time but it's it's almost like we've got our avatars out there i I guess this is a personal view Uh, i mean actually my master's was in space manufacturing colonies so way back when Gerard K O'Neill and so on I mean I was very much an advocate of that but as I've been much more involved in industry I've seen what AI can do I've seen what robotics can do I've seen what miniaturization can do I mean there's a lot of ambition at the moment for for Mars and, and astronauts on Mars but I think in 20 or 30 years time when we could well have AI solutions that are very capable of looking after their own resources. I mean, our own ExoMars rover has a degree of AI involved. Uh, so even sample return, there might be a situation where you know a, a robot can do the analysis on the sample on the surface of, of Mars rather than bringing it back to Earth for, for analysis. At the moment, the preference would be to bring the analysis, the sample back to Earth for the analysis. But 30 years in AI tech is, is, is actually going to be a long, a long time. So I'm not an advocate of simply going to send astronauts to surfaces like Mars to do science when I think there's other ways of doing the science. I think the reason you send astronauts to surfaces of Mars are for different reasons. They play to a different agenda. Um, I personally want to make sure the science agenda is supported first and foremost. Uh, And then if the technology is there and it's possible to, to put astronauts elsewhere, then fine. But equally, I'm an advocate of the fact that there isn't one square kilometre anywhere in the solar system that is more beautiful than any one square kilometre of the absolute worst area on this planet. Um, and that's something I've come to accept as I've gone older. Uh, and you, so you mentioned O'Neill and his, with these, these famous mm. uh, images of these uh, giant cylinders yep. in space and space colonies. And I suppose that's the argument, isn't it, or one of the arguments for ultimately trying to establish a settlement on Mars is this idea of, of colonising Mars. I mean, we're, we're watching this... Uh, Oh, mediocre yes, Netflix series, like uh, Salvation, Salvation on right. Netflix yes, at the moment. I gave up on that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, this idea, well, it seemed, I don't yeah. know whether they do call those, well, we haven't really got yeah. through first series at the moment. But that idea of actually, if humanity is to survive, if Earth gets hit by an asteroid or we wipe ourselves out, that we need an outpost somewhere else. And you're a bit of a sci-fi fan, aren't you, Chris? You know I am. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, the difficulty I have with actually placing uh, a human on another planet is, you know, it's very difficult to realise that this, this environment is trying to kill you. And you. There aren't many places on Earth where you face that degree of challenge. Um, so... Uh, in some senses, the space environment is actually better. I quite understand the colony argument of Gerard O'Neill, rather than trying to live on the surface of, of a planet that's also trying to kill you. Um, so uh, I think if you can find a way where the technology makes it more risk-free, I mean, Elon Musk is obviously trying to, to de-risk the technology to make it possible, then let's have the discussion. But if it consumes so much of the budget and so much opportunity costs for the organisations involved, then we have to question whether now is the right time. Well, I must say, that's one of the reasons I do like Salvation, although it's not perfect. They've got Darius as the Elon Musk character, effectively, but also that they are looking at a much more realistic scenario, I feel, in that you know, we're about to mutually destroy each other with nuclear weapons and you have to build an ark. And that's, you know... I, or could become a reality. You could, but on the other hand, I'm much more sympathetic to the sort of scenario you get in the sci-fi uh, series The Expanse, mm-hmm. if you've seen that, where you do get the feeling that, you know, Earth has evolved. It's taken the step out into the solar system, but for very economic reasons. Uh, you have the politics moving out. It's not all about disaster on Earth, but there is a sense of growth 
uh, and so you know the asteroid community and the, I feel plays better to what we might try realistically to do in the next 50 to 100 years. It's, it's funny, I'd not watched The Expanse until quite recently because I was on Space Rocks, um, which is organised by ESA. It was at the um, O2, and I was on a panel with Dominique Tipper, oh, who yes. is, yeah. Mark McCochran knows I'm dead jealous about this. <laughs> yeah. And she was so nice. So I watched, I binge-watched a load of episodes. And you're right, it's, it's very gritty and realistic and does give because they always say about science fiction you take today's problems and project or you reflect it and effectively you had a an underclass working on the asteroid belt the belters and it was gritty and people couldn't come back to earth and or their you know gravity would effectively destroy them physically but yeah a very very good depiction of probably what the future is going to be like it is because we haven't even started to think about whether we'll use crispr technology to actually modify the human genome so that it can survive or it you know humans can survive on surfaces and then you get the question as you've just raised which is well that means they might not be able to come back to earth so we're starting to get two differentiations going on here so difference from thinking about astronauts just thinking of different types of people well let's go back to where it all began and just four months after the first men walked on the moon nasa was ready to do it again Apollo 12 was launched on November the 14th, 1969. On board, Pete Conrad, Dick Gordon and Alan Bean. And it was destined for the Ocean of Storms, an appropriate destination, as it turned out. Here's an extract from our Audible series, The Space Race, of the launch of Apollo 12. It features lead flight director on the mission, Jerry Griffin. That's a lovely liftoff. Let's not be it at all. So what we did is we generated our own lightning because the engine exhaust out of the Saturn V, which was massive, created a a ground. It completely knocked all the electrical systems off in the command module. What the hell was that? I lost a whole bunch of stuff. I don't know. Roger, we had a whole bunch of buses drop off. There's nothing. There's nothing. There's nothing. At the same time, they also had a master and cautionary warning panel that had a series of lights that said what was wrong. Conrad started reading that. I got a main A disconnect, main B disconnect. He was just firing them off. But the whole panel essentially lit up. I got three fuel cell lights, an AC bus light, a fuel cell disconnect, AC bus overload, one and two, main bus A and B out. And uh, this young man from a little college in southeastern Oklahoma named John Aaron made a call that said, tell him to try SCE to AUX. So I turned to Jerry Carr. Jerry Carr was the Capcom. And I said, uh, Capcom, tell him to try SCE to AUX. I didn't know what the switch was. And Carr said, what? <laughs> At that point, John Aaron said, uh, tell him to try SCE to auxiliary. Conrad had never heard of the switch either. And he said, NCE to aux? What the hell is that? And that's a quote Albine knew where the switch was, right in front of him. We got it back, boy. Looks good. Okay. Right out. Go. The command module came back up, and uh, the lights came back up, and the lights went off on the master caution and warning panel. It was really funny to listen to the crew after that. If you listen to the voice tapes, they got giggly. It was like a near accident in an auto sometime when you say, boy, did you see that? And wow, and they were all giggling with each other, and it was funny the whole way, almost all the way to orbit. Well, we got into orbit and then did a test of everything we could. Everything looked okay, and uh, finally said, "We're go. Let's go to go to the moon." <laughs> 
Apollo 12. Lead flight director, the lovely Jerry Griffin. That's from our Audible series, The Space Race, which we will unapologetically keep going on about. In fact, it's uh, it's actually nominated for an award, a Sir Arthur Clarke Award. Yeah. As is Wally Frank's Race for Race Space. Race for Space, yeah. I know, yeah. Who wrote that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I hear she's fantastic. Yeah, she is. Yeah. Quite difficult, though, <laughs> I gather. No bloody yeah. day. Yeah. <laughs> In engineering and uh, scientific terms, Apollo 12 was a great success. Conrad made a precise landing within just a few metres of an unmanned surveyor probe. But the other reason the uh, mission's often talked about is because of the TV coverage. And you know this, don't you, Chris? I was certainly aware that that was one of the problems. And I think I think I can remember this more than I can the lunar landing because the lunar landing of Apollo, um, Apollo 11, had persuaded us all what to expect the next time round. So I think we were all very gripped to see something you know, live from the surface, and it, then it went. Yeah, well, it was meant to be. It was going to be the first colour TV yeah. from the surface of the moon. It was crazy, because they could have taken colour TV on 11. And it was a bit 11. of it, wasn't there, at the beginning, yeah, and so then it went. They, so what happened was uh, con- the, the, the camera automatically activated when they opened the side panel on the Apollo, so uh, on the lander. So you see Conrad's come down the, the steps, and then you see Al Bean come down the steps. Then it was Al Bean's job to remove the camera from the side of the lander and mount it on a tripod. In doing so, he points it at the sun. At the sun. And it just zaps it. And so if you, you can see the pictures, and they're, they're still out there on, uh, on YouTube, where you've got this uh, black of the, the first bottom two-thirds, and it's because this white sort of patch at the top, and that's and, it. And the problem with this is, of course, it started decades of conspiracy theories uh, that you know, it didn't really Why am happen. I not surprised. Yeah. Do you know what happened next? So this is extraordinary. I only found this out recently. Um, so the, the the TV networks, two TV networks in the states, were taking this. So CBS and NBC. So they had a plan B. Now CBS mocked up in a studio two men in spacesuits with the sound. So you had the sound live from the moon of the most extraordinary. It's NBC, and this is for real. They used marionettes, so puppets. (laughs) They literally had a gantry with these puppets of astronauts walking across the moon. What's that? Not Thunderbirds. What's the one, uh, the American one that was like Thunderbirds that they did? The puppet film, something America. Oh, Team America, Team World America. Police. Team America, so it was yeah. like a bit Team America then, yeah. was so it? so with live commentary from the moon, while obviously mocking stuff up in a studio. So no wonder there are these moon landing conspiracies. Absolutely extraordinary. Uh, brilliant. Uh, I wonder if they, they... You never know, though, because when you see nowadays, I've seen science correspondence on news programmes um, broadcast as if they're on the surface of Mars because they've projected and sometimes you look at it and you just think just because you think you just because you can doesn't mean you ought to because it just looks ridiculous I can imagine now the 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 landing through Artemis on the surface and possibly a UK astronaut as part of that team and it goes wrong and we have clangers walking around the background (laughs) as our backup so Yep. That would be fantastic, wouldn't it? If they cut to clangers, that would be really good. Well, look, thank you very much to our guest, Chris Lee, Head of Science. And uh, I'm I'm glad to have you on finally, because I love following you on Twitter. Remind people what your Twitter handle is, because people ought to follow you as well. Uh, CPLUK43. See, see, you need to know that. (laughs) You need to know that. Yeah, Head of Science, the UK Space Agency, who kindly support the Space Boffins podcast. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists and uh, do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. And just in case you're missing it... Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. I can't believe you've done that. I can't believe you've done that. I am going to be bloody difficult now. (laughs) Stop saying bloody... (laughs) 